Good morning. Yeah, but. Strange name for a sermon, right? It works. Revelation chapter 2, we're going through the letters to the churches. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Look at us, Lord. We're working diligently. Getting it done. Inexhaustible and persevering, just waiting for you to return and find us working. Yeah, but do you love me? Are you still doing the things you did when you first met me, when your heart was bursting with joy as you realized and received my gift of love and forgiveness? Or are you just trying to earn it now? Or worse, trying to impress other people with your godliness? Sorry, but I'm not impressed. Come back. We discover your first love. Such is the gist of this first letter to the seven churches, the one addressed to Ephesus. Find Revelation chapter 2, if you would please. You're going to read, read that letter, which begins in verse 1, conveniently. To the angel at the church of Ephesus write, These things I say, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who, evil, who are evil, and you have tested those who said they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Verse 3. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works, first works or else. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. I just realized the way I read that sounded really dire. Repent and do the first works or else. There's a comma there. But either way, it's not a good consequence if you don't. But this you have, verse 6, that you heed the deeds of the Nicolaitans, however you say it, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. A short letter with a lot of depth to it, to be sure. And it starts with a revelation of who Jesus is. It's followed by a commendation, kudos, and turns into rebuke, but, and ends with a promise that those among them who listen to the Spirit and overcomes that for which they're being rebuked, that they will eat from the tree of life in paradise. And just that line alone, that line about paradise, opens up a whole mosaic of imagery, revelation, and questions. Who would not want to be in God's paradise? What and where is that? Is it different from heaven? Is there really a tree of life? Is it the same one that Adam and Eve ate from until they messed up and ate from the bad tree? Is that the paradise Jesus was referring to when he told the thief on the cross that this day you'll be with me in paradise? 
Well, if you read further in Revelation, you'll see that the tree of life growing along the river, you'll see that tree of life growing along the river that flows from the temple in the New Jerusalem when it comes down from heaven. Revelation 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. So that sounds like a pretty literal tree to me. But aside from the grand unimaginable beauty of a crystalline river flowing from the midst of the throne of God out of the temple, lined with trees that never cease to bear fruit, is the implication of it. Everything that happened in the Garden of Eden that sent the world of mankind down the path of death and decay, that gave our rightful dominion over creation to the ancient serpent, and opened us up to never-ending abuse and pain, probably notice there's some of that around, all of that's going to be undone. It's going to be reversed, and things will be set back in perfect order, even better than before. The curse will be removed, and so will the devil and his minions. There'll be no more serpent to come and deceive us. So, but trying to dissect a simple statement at the end of this letter will just leave you with more questions than answers. But the obvious implication is that we're going to end up in a beautiful place. And that all the senses will find this place extremely pleasing. And the struggles will be over. The struggle against the selfish and corrupt flesh. The struggle against the wiles of the devil. The struggles against sin and shame. The struggle against our weak flesh, which always seems to come up with some new ailment or affliction to try to torment us, to torment us until the day it fails completely, usually causing great pain to everyone we live. Yeah, we know we're going to live forever, but in the meantime, we die, and it really stinks. My mother always says, I know I'm going to die. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> and it causes pain to those you love because they don't get to see you for a while. But one day, that will all be over. If we just listen to what the Spirit says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him and her who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. That's eternal life. In the midst of the paradise of God, that's a real place. We have vivid, vivid descriptions of it in the book of Revelation. And the Spirit of the Lord says, trust me, love me, listen to me, because I've given everything for you. And I want you in that paradise that I created just for you. We dream and fantasize, long for, and even invent stories of paradise, never really comprehending or grasping that we will be there in fellowship with our God and in perfect harmony with creation where we're restored to our rightful place as kings and priests, as we saw in the last chapter, as we are even today, present tense. But then, we'll be kings and priests without opposition, with no need to fight for our rights as children of God. For all will be restored by the one who walks in our midst and checks that our light has not been diminished by our propensity to grow cynical and doubtful, or lulled asleep by the weariness of our souls, 
in the lives of those who claim to know our God, but don't. I know your work, Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Singing in the background. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you can spot those false prophets. False, false prophets? That's an apostle prophet combination. False apostles and prophets, pretty much the same, because they always have a chip on their shoulder and a rebuke for the pastor on their lips. Yet they can never land in one place for very long because no church is worthy of them. And they really hate it when you don't agree with them and offer them your pulpit. I'm sorry, but if you want me to listen to your rebukes and wisdom, there better be some fruits of the Spirit happening there, being manifest in your life, because paradise is at stake. And the devil is really good at stealing it away. He probably came across as an apostle in that garden that day. Paul told the Corinthians, for such are false prophets, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, and you will know them by their fruits. I think I skipped over part of my sermon here. <laughs> I'm on cold meds, sorry. <clears throat> Whatever, we're good. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Part I skipped was, when you achieve any position of authority or a voice in the, in the church, false prophets come out of the woodwork. Can I come and speak at your church? Or they catch you in the corner. Blah, 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 blah. They want to set you straight. They, they can do your job better than you can, yet they've never pastored a church or been anointed or appoint, appointed to any position. They just take it on themselves. Well, God made me special, and I know all these things. Let me tell you how it is. And like I said, they usually have a chip on their shoulder, and that's what he's talking about here. You recognize these people, and you don't put up with it. Kudos to you. Because that's how the enemy deceives us. The deceptions that happen in the church are far worse than the ones that happen outside. Where they're not pretending to speak for God. Did God really say? But enough of the fakers. Let's get back to, to Jesus. These things says these. These things says he. Who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Verse 1. Each of the letters to the seven churches starts with a different description of Jesus. Most of them taken from John's description of him in chapter 1. But he highlights that one of these in each of the seven letters, so this has to be significant. And whether each church needed to hear some certain aspect of his attributes to highlight what he's about to tell them, or 
it's just a literary tool to paint a complete picture of Jesus when you put them all together of the wholeness and supremacy of Christ when you look at them all as a whole I, I don't know probably some of both Jesus knew what each church and subsequently each church represented in these letters for generations to come what they would need to hear each one of these churches represents all of us in some way shape or form and I can certainly find myself in this letter to Ephesus uncomfortably so and I'm not going to lie. It's quite challenging and uncomfortable to have to preach on this as we face an end of an era here at Hope Chapel as I look forward and toward to taking a break. Have I grown weary? Lost my first love? Am I about to have my lampstand taken away? I don't know. I don't see anything in this letter about taking a break. And just what are those first works that we're not doing? Are we going to lose our lampstand? You know, that's kind of scary. What do I need to repent of? Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the first works. Or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See what I mean? Hard stuff. And honestly, I looked at these letters to the churches in the years past and decided I didn't want to preach on them because there are some uncomfortable things there. But here we are. The word is the word, and I've been called to preach all of it. But I've always said we don't get to skip around the parts we don't like. At least we're not supposed to. And that's, I think, what ultimately leads to having your lampstand taken away from before the throne and your first love growing cold. If you decide, oh, I'm going to ignore this part and I'm going to ignore that part. But when we look at the hard stuff and hear what the Spirit would say to us and set our minds to understand and our hearts to receive then we are blessed. Then we're encouraged and strengthened. Then we grow as people, and that's what a church is. A collection of people who have decided to gather together for the purpose of encouraging one another to grow in him and to foster that love. Being determined to understand and know all of God's word, not skipping over the challenging parts, also means we'll know the whole of Scripture and not be disproportionately influenced by any particular passage being contextually isolated from the whole of God's word. So yes, on the face, it may seem to indicate here in this short letter that growing weary is a sin, and that the works, that works are of utmost importance. And I hope you have a problem with that conclusion, because I kind of do. Because we know from the rest of Scripture, including the example and words of Jesus himself in the Gospels, that rest on occasion is not a sin. It's one of the ways that we keep from growing weary. I mean, the principle of the Sabbath is right up there in the top ten of God's golden rules, the, the big ones. Not the golden rules, I guess they're all golden. But. And for works, works for the sake of works in itself is a sin. As our salvation is by grace and the love of the Father can't be purchased. We're not trying to earn our Father's love by our works. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. Walking, working, and resting in that grace is a lifelong adventure. That looks different for each and every one of us. But it's an adventure we must undertake. And we all have to discover our own balance in that. 
let's get back to the particular description that Jesus uses to introduce himself to the pastor at Ephesus. And I say pastor because that's what a messenger is. That is the messenger, I believe, that he's talking about in his letters, the angel that God uses to speak to his churches. And it would be weird for the Lord to be writing these letters to the heavenly angels. He's writing them to the churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? These things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. So to the angel, I like the way Jack Hayford puts it in his study Bible, pastors slash messengers of the churches. Pastor messengers. The word angel just means messenger. So some think this reference might be to a guardian angel assigned to each church or to a collective that represents the church as though the church is a single unit like the Borg on Star Trek. We are one, resistance is futile. Really bad board, but. but in the context here, it makes sense to me that the angel is a singular person, not a Borg or a collective or some heavenly being. And thus, if the pastor is the messenger, the importance of the pastor to have a prophetic gifting becomes crucial. You need to be able to hear from the Lord. You can't be a messenger representing a message giver if you don't have a message to give, you got to know what the message is. You got to be hearing it before you can deliver it. And I think there was probably one leader in each of these churches who was setting the course of these churches, who had his hand on a rudder, so to speak, who needed to take these words to heart. Okay, I love that you guys are working hard and you're patient and you haven't given up, but I have this against you, Pastor So and so. You need to help your church get set straight here. I've got you in my hand. And that's a hard task, changing the course of a church. Trust me. Changing hearts of people from judgmental to abounding in grace, for example, or from lethargy to passion, worldliness to holiness, religious to relational, fearful to confident, all of these is a huge challenge. And if a church is anchored in one particular mindset, it's a tough thing to uproot them from that poisonous soil and replant them in good soil. It takes a confident leader. And a church that operates by mob rule, what they like to call democracy, will soon find itself looking a lot like the world. I'm not saying democracy is bad in the world, I'm saying it's not necessarily good in the church. Because you'll soon end up looking like the world. Holiness becomes replaced by acceptance. Repentance is replaced by tolerance. The word is replaced by politically correct fluff. Led by a pastor who has to win re-election based on popularity and how much money you bring into the, to the church. So then you end up putting pride rainbows in your windows, doing gay weddings, and suggesting the Ten Commandments are just suggestions that at one time kept an ignorant people enslaved to shame in a dark age that is long gone, along with the need to adhere to those archaic notions. Now that'll get me kicked off Facebook for the rest of my life, I'm sure. <laughs> but at this point, I don't care. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. That's the thing I care about. 
I'm not sure that was the right verse anyways, but it worked. And if you find much of the word of God offensive, then yeah, you've probably lost your lampstand. Not so much because you had it removed, but because you made it impossible for the Lord to walk amongst you. He's walking amongst the lampstands. Well, if your lampstand is burning with crud instead of pure oil from the word, it's just putting out smoke. He doesn't want to be there. Well, surely he can't be the only way to heaven, right? We all have to embrace all faiths as our brothers and sisters and understand that God loves us all regardless. Regardless of who we pray through or to or even if we do. Just be good and follow your heart. And blessings will follow. Repent? Oh, that's such a harsh word. Let's all understand that we can't help but be who we are. And we'll all be fine. Might be, <laughs> might be important. Okay, <laughs> we're at a transition point through anyways. That took a little weird turn. The point is, we need to see the world with a biblical perspective, we need to measure everything we believe, say, and do through the lens of the Word of God, not by what is acceptable to the world. Because if you haven't noticed, the world is getting to be a long ways from God. And that's the whole problem. Back to the individual churches and leaders. To me, it seems like the healthier churches have one person as this letter would suggest, who is ultimately responsible for setting the direction, casting the vision, and being ultimately responsible for the ultimate health and heart of the church family. And it's a huge responsibility to be sure, and one that the pastor messenger, the angel, must take seriously and approach humbly, assured in his or her appointment with all diligence. Churches that are led by committee die by committee. Well, at the same time, churches whose pastors don't heed wise counsel from those who serve alongside or, in or are in authority over him will end up serving only themselves and their pride. It's a dangerous place to be. And that's a sure way to end up groping in the dark, wondering where your lampstand went. A wise messenger knows they're in the hand of the one who calls them and finds comfort, direction, strength, and wisdom there. And a true leader is no more than a servant, serving the one who called them while teaching others to serve. And sometimes that hand that holds those servants just needs to close and hold them in their protection for a while. And security, like a child holding the butterfly, that's what I imagine, just emerged from its cocoon, gently and protectively cupping it, look what I found, until it works out the creases of its newfound wings and takes an inventory of its new self, until it's ready to fly and discover its new purpose, no longer crawling around in the garden on on leaves, hoping that doesn't get eaten by the hungry birds squawking overhead. But now able to fly far above the garden once it's been protected and able to, to recoup and rediscover its new purpose and place and avoid all those who never saw them as any more than a destructive pest or a meal before. Pardon me. 
Resting and refitting are essential in the natural world and in the spiritual world. And as I write this, I'm encouraged, as I hope you all are, that this season of change preceded by rest that we are suddenly in, it may seem to some, is not the end, but only the beginning of something new and better. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by day and rise, sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. And he himself doesn't know how. The farmer puts the seed in the ground and he just has to wait. He can't be out there, come on, grow, grow, grow. Let me poke it a little bit. Why won't you grow? Well, grow when it's good and ready. God's in control of that part. Unless the seed dies, it can't bear fruit. Well, I can't just put this seed in the ground. It'll just rot. Well, not quite. It's part of the process. But once that seed is planted, all you can do is wait and pray. Is the Lord, just as he does with the caterpillar who seems to be sealed in its own tomb of destruction, of a cocoon, causes a transformation that can't happen except by being still and waiting. So this word picture of Jesus at the intro of this letter to Ephesus is more than just poetic imagery meant to impress and awe. And I find this self-ascribed attribute of Jesus really very comforting and telling. It's the Lord's way of saying, you, all of you, who would be my messengers, who are my ambassadors on the earth, pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists, teachers. You're in my hands. And all of you, my children, when you gather as a family, a church to seek first the kingdom of heaven and find strength and purpose to be a light as from a lamp on a hill, I'm walking among you. Because if you recall from the previous chapter, the seven stars are the angels. We're pastors of the churches and the lampstands are the churches. Revelation 1.20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So when Jesus says, I walk among the lampstands, he's walking amongst the churches. Reminds me of what Jesus said about wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. To think that Jesus would walk among us as we gather while we worship, study his word, fellowship, and pray, wherever we're gathered, whenever we're gathered, whatever number, for the sake of honoring him and communing with the family, he's there. It's very comforting, I think. And this is replicated literally in heaven. As Jesus not only walks among us, but that we are in heaven. Our lamps are in heaven. He sees us there. He's taking care of us from there and in there. I don't know how it works. I'm not God. But what a picture. We're there shining before the Father as an illuminating flame. Look, Father, look what I have. I have this beautiful church, this golden lampstand. I'm going to set it right here in front of you, in front of your throne, placed and made holy by the blood of the Lamb who walks among those beautiful lights that are his church, tending to them, trimming the wicks, keeping the reservoirs full and fanning the flames with the breath of the Spirit. And in his hand, as he tends to those lamps, his church, are those he has appointed to shepherd his people. To teach and to tend, feed and comfort as they in turn are fed and comforted by the one who holds, who holds all of them. And if we recognize that, 
recognize who holds us and walks among us and with us, how could our love grow cold? And I think that might be why he used this particular description when he wrote this church. This hard-working, spirit-testing church. Because for all their perseverance and devil-stomping, they've forgotten why they fell in love with the Lord in the first place. I have you in my hand. I walk amongst you. Y'all got so busy, you forgot about me. The honeymoon was over. The romance was gone. The drudgery and the duty of marriage was now king. You had better not get between me and between us, you lying apostles. They're, they're so focused on working and making sure these false apostles and Nicolaitans, whatever they are, people with false teaching and grander, greater ideas and revelations, no doubt, they're smart enough to stay away from them. But then they forget about fostering your love with the Lord. Well, we got it all figured out. We know it. We know it's true. We're just going to keep working. We're on a mission. We have no time for your silliness of fostering love. It's like the old farmer. Years, years after they got married, his wife says, how come you never tell me you love me? He says, I told you I loved you when we got married. If it changes, I'll let you know. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Tony. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> you have to say it. From the mouth speaks, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart, the Lord said. And if you aren't telling the Lord you love him, he's perceiving a heart that's less than full. And I think it works the other way also. Your heart tends to take on what your lips are saying. If you're talking love and wholeness and peace, that's what's going to be in your heart. It works both ways. Or maybe you're just too busy for such nonsense. You've persevered and have patience. There it is. And have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And I see here the answer is to ha perhaps why they've lost their first love. Have they become all about works? Look at us. We're working, working, working. We haven't grown impatient. We're tireless in our pursuit of glorifying the name of Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, that's great. Yeah, you got my stuff all over the place, but what about me? Come sit. Let's spend some time together. Are you a Mary or a Martha? Can't read this later without thinking about that. <clears throat> Martha welcomed Jesus into her house, and she had a sister called Mary. Mary was a very popular name in those days. Who else sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word? But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. I'm doing all this work. She's just sitting there. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. No doubt Mary is in paradise today. Martha probably is too. <laughs> but Mary never lost her first love. She didn't have to work to get it back. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Boys, strive to make this church a place where everyone is welcome and, and loved and feels loved and welcomed. The only people I've really had issues with are those with the religious spirit. There's been a few of those, and they don't usually last long who want to come in and he said, tell me how to do things or, or start pointing their fingers at people and looking down their noses at them. You know, I talked about churches that end up doing things that are unbiblical. And, and, but there's a difference between condoning things and facilitating things and loving people. Well, this is just the way I am. I can't help it. Right now, yes. But that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus pours out his love. And that's why, yes, us do the same. So that you can be set free from those things. So that we can begin to peel that stuff away that you think you're trapped in or stuck with or just who you are and discover that you inside that Jesus made you to be the good, perfect, whole person who doesn't have to wonder and strive and struggle and stress about how come I feel this way. It comes to set us free. And we have to be the people who facilitate allowing that to happen. Not keeping you trapped in that place. And that's why we need to keep preaching the truth. Teaching the truth and, and looking at the hard stuff. And not just so that we can teach it to other people so that's it's looking at us. When we're reading the scriptures, we're looking in the mirror. All right, Lord, what, what does the Spirit want me to hear? That, that, that the church is here what the Spirit has to say. That we understand we are the church. So I am supposed to be hearing this because I'm a part of the church. What is this letter saying to me? Not just, well, where can I find the scriptures so I can set so-and-so straight? No. Lord, what do I need to know today to help set me straight? And then when we see someone else is struggling with the same thing, then we can have empathy. Hey, you know, I was struggling with that too, and I found the scripture, or this is what I, how I dealt with that. That's why I say my job is a ministry, my, my construction job. Those of you who know me for a long time know I have a lot of issues. Shut up, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of them, sarcasm. See? See? Just, just, it just falls out of me like that. Ah. But, but when I get through the struggles, and, and I, it helps me to relate to people. Yeah, I know I've, I've dealt with depression, too. I've dealt with anxiety, too. Yeah, I've had a drinking problem. Yeah, I've had a drug problem. And that's why I follow the Lord now, because he helped me through that stuff. I get to witness like that all the time at work. You know, and that's... That's what we're all supposed to be doing. Being the messenger, being the angel that God uses to shine the light to this world. Not just looking for reasons to hate people, condemn them. Because that's going to push people away. And that's what people see when they see the church these days. That's why they don't have nothing to do with us. So, yeah, I'm going to preach the hard truths. Probably going to get me kicked off social platforms or whatever. 
But it's true, so I need to be heard in a spirit of love. And that's the trick. Let's pray, because that's the only thing that works. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for the Holy Word, and help us, Lord, to, to understand and hear what the Spirit would say to us as individuals and as a church through your Word so that we can take it to heart so that not we're just looking in the mirror and walking away, as James said, that we're doing something about it. Hey, you know, this is out of place, that's out of place. Lord, help me to straighten this out. I want to be better. That we're always striving to be better. And that's all you ask of us. Not that we're perfect, but that we keep, keep walking, walking forward, walking ever closer to you. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for loving us just where we're at. But loving us enough not to leave us there. And Lord, help us to be the people that facilitate that in others. When they see us, they're encouraged. Hey, maybe I'm not stuck here. Maybe I can be better. Maybe I can find joy and peace. Be comfortable with, be comfortable in my own skin. And that can only happen if the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives inside. So Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for dying for us. And that salvation is by grace. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, we believe in you. We trust you. We give you our hearts. We do all of this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen.